Well, take your Bibles with me tonight and return to our study of the Gospel of John, if you're not there already. We are in John chapter 14, and we are continuing our study through this great Gospel, this accounting of the life of Jesus Christ on earth, and we have been proceeding through it. I have found myself more and more drawn to this book as we have been studying it. Uh, I, I don't think that it's by accident in any kind of way that we find ourselves in chapter 14 in our study. Uh, I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what you are going through, but I believe that our great God has his providential hand upon each and every one of us, orchestrating all of it, orchestrating everything that has taken place, everything in our lives that goes on. To say that we have had difficult times in the history of the body of this church, in the history probably of your own life, uh, as I think about my own days, as my own ministry life has gone on for some 20 years, I think about the ups and the downs that I have had, to think about the reality that we have had tumultuous times in our life is an understatement, but to say that we are ever in times that are overwhelming for those who love Jesus Christ would be even more a monumental overstatement. And it would really, in fact, be a denial of the very one in whom we find our strength in life, wouldn't it? To say that life for us is too much to handle would be really, in many ways, to roll off our lips with some blasphemy because God is our strength. So, being in John chapter 14 is providential, I think, for all of us in our lives. These are times in which we live in our days like that which captive Israel faced really in the times when they were captive in Persia, times when Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, said to her, who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this? Who knows whether God has done something in your life and placed you in that certain place for such a time as this. Who knows? These are designed times. Times whereby we are allowed by God for just what we are going through, not only individually, but as a church, and more importantly, it is for our growth. So, I think this is strategic in God's eternal plan for each one of us. And we come here tonight, hopefully, with that in mind. And it is that that has been on my mind as I have been thinking through John chapter 14. Sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of those whom we're reading about, and yet that is exactly why it's here. It is here, as Randy told us, even with the Old Testament. It is here for our example, and I believe the New Testament is here for our teaching and here by way in many ways, for our example, to follow in the footsteps of those whom we are reading about. And so we would be remiss if we weren't drawing out from it what we ought to be doing. I believe God has us in this passage right now because of the strategic importance that Jesus' words to his disciples that night have for each one of us here. Calvin, can you turn this down a little bit? It's a little hot. I think I'm going to, my voice raises, it's going to send you off your seats. 
we are here for and by the providence of God. All these things are from Jesus Christ as instructions to them, all of his commandments to them, all of his promises to them, each and every warning given to them, the words from his lips as he walked with them were perfectly planned by the Father so that they individually and as a group might be prepared spiritually for all the turmoil that was about to break out for them in just a few short hours. They needed to be prepared. The total shock of their lives was about to happen. Jesus Christ was about to leave this earth. He was about to die. And on top of all of that, they had already heard from Christ. They had experienced the betrayal of someone who was part of the group in Judas turning his back upon Jesus Christ and them. The actual death of the one whom they had been following for several years, their teacher would be heavy upon them. It would be a crushing blow to their troubled spirits if they were not prepared, if they weren't ready spiritually. Part of our problem in life is that we sometimes aren't ready. And the things that were taking place in their lives were going to prepare them. Things that were about to take place in their midst would be enough to send any of us over the edge of kind of a uh, uh, industrial, if you will, panic mode. And the only way they were going to continue through this kind of news was to be able to be strengthened in the spiritual realm. So think about it with me for a moment. Take your mind's eye and put yourself in their shoes. Here you are, one of the disciples, one of the close disciples, one of the twelve you are with them. Jesus was everything to you. And in just a short, his short time with you, his short ministry with you, you had witnessed him minister in some pretty amazing ways. Right? Every time someone came to him, every time the Jewish leadership brought accusations against him, every question posed to him, he had successfully dealt with. He had successfully rooted his way, given an answer, uh, in some way made it so that nothing happened to him. No one was able to seize him, even when they were about to stone him when he was in John chapter 8 with the adulterous woman, and they bring that woman out, and Jesus is there, and they are about to stone him along with this woman in John chapter 8 trying to trap him. He goes away untouched. And now, now he's telling you, he's going to die. More than that, really, it would be through the hands of evil men. Now he's going to leave the scene. Now he's going to leave you in your mind alone, and it would be at the hands of evil men. You talk about confusion. You think about who they are. You think about you being in their shoes. Talk about the desire to know the answers the desire to have your questions answered. These guys were now thoroughly confused about what was going to take place. Talk about understanding, not understanding. Talk about being perplexed. They wanted some answers. They wanted some tangible answers that they could hold on to. They were understandably confused. And I believe that most of all, they 
or even wondering in some kind of way in the back of their minds in light of all of this if Jesus was actually who he said he was. I think that was probably the greatest question in the back of their mind. All of these promises and teachings, are they real? Were they a fraud? Could everybody else actually be right? You ever said that to yourself? Could everybody out there who doubts what you believe actually be right and maybe you're the one who's wrong? Confusion, bewilderment, fear, anger, deeply troubled spirits, all of those things are happening. How is Christ going to deal with it? How's Christ going to deal with their hearts? How's Christ going to deal with that kind of potential anxiety? What would he say to them in that strategic moment when everything is seemingly falling apart? What are you going to say to a friend? What is God saying to you in that strategic moment when life seems to be running out of control that would Jesus is going to say exactly what he knows they need. And he's going to equip them for what was to come. So this is the beauty of this text. We're not dealing here with just anybody. We're not dealing with just any advice for the day. This isn't just, well, this is another opinion that maybe we can take it or leave it. We have here before us What we have here is the only solution for nagging unanswered questions in times of turmoil. This is the only solution for a troubled heart. God in the flesh knows just what we need and He knows just like He knows what they needed. So let me read for us Jesus' words and then we'll begin to look at them more closely together. Beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, otherwise... Believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, You will keep my commandments. Once again, we come face to face with the profoundness 
of just a few short words of Jesus Christ. And what amazes me the most as I read this passage is that Christ doesn't give the answers that we might expect. He rather refers them back in their own understanding to what he has already taught concerning what it takes to live by what we learned last time we were here, what it takes to live by steadfast faith. Remember we said, how do we keep going when times of trouble happen? And we said that Jesus said to them in the first six verses, listen, stop letting your hearts be troubled. Have a steadfast faith. You believe in God? then believe in me also, right? You want to you wanna have a, a strength in the time of trouble, you need to have a steadfast faith. You need to believe that I am who I said I am. I am, I am God. You need to believe in my promises, believe in my integrity, believe all about me. And then he comes along and Christ elaborates on three realities that we must think about if we are going to live with steadfast faith. If we're going to live by these words. Christ elaborates on these on, on three realities that have to be settled and exercised upon in times like that, in tumultuous times. Without the first of these three, the second will be ineffective. Without the first, the second will be ineffective. Here are the three realities that I want to just kind of begin to talk about tonight. One... One, the first reality is who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. He's already elaborated a little bit about this in the first six verses, but he gets down to the brass tacks even more so in verses 7 to 15. Who Jesus is, verses 7 to 11. Second reality that is based upon the first, without the first, the second two are ineffective, the first is who he is. The second is our potential in him, verse 12. And then the third is the promise from him, verses 13 and 14. So who he is, our potential in him, number two, and the promise from him, verses 13 and 14. Now remember, Christ knows what we need most. Christ knows what we need most. He knew what these people needed Right then, he knows what we need right now. He knew that what they didn't need was lengthy details answering all the whys and the how questions that come to their mind. He knew they did not need that. Remember, just prior to this time in chapter 12, Jesus Christ had entered Jerusalem on a donkey and the people were hailing him as king of the Jews. And now he's talking about dying. What they want is more information. What they needed was not new information. What they needed was to be reminded of what was old information that they had not yet acted upon. They knew what Jesus claimed to be. But all that is taking place, all that is going on, all that Jesus is starting to tell them doesn't seem to fit in their mind at what he meant by that. They're confused. They're not so sure of who Jesus is. 
Thomas even said in verse 5, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How, how do we know the way? And, of course, Jesus makes that verse that all of us have, says those words in that verse that all of us have probably memorized. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Believe my promise, Thomas. And so Jesus tells them again who he is. Jesus reminds them of old information that they must act upon, who he is, and it's in language they cannot miss. Notice verse 7, if you had known me, implication, you don't know me, and he's not talking simply about intellectual knowledge. They had an intellectual knowledge. We'll mention that in a moment. He's talking about an experiential knowledge, this this. this Hebrew mindset kind of knowledge. You, you, you could know something intellectually, but you really didn't know it in the fullest sense in the Hebrew mindset if you weren't doing it, weren't acting upon it. That's what Jesus is talking about. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Implication is when you see me, you see God. On the surface, it seems rather confusing as to how Jesus is answering to them, but it's clear when we read Christ's answer to Philip's question. Philip's question in verse 8 says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. He makes that, that statement to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to him in verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Do you not understand, Philip? Do you not see? Do you not realize what I've told you already, that I am deity? If you believe in God, believe also in me. I am God. When you see me, you see the Father. There is an essence. There is an equal essence to the Godhead. There isn't two gods. There isn't two separate gods running about. There is one God in three persons. We are one. So when you see me, you see the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You must not know me. Please help explain the confusion that we, on the surface anyway, seem to find, at least in our own hearts and minds sometimes, in verse 7. When Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. There seems to be a confusion going on. Well, weren't they with Jesus? They're is confusion because it's just in cursory reading of verse 7. It seems to say that the disciples haven't known Christ at all. And while that is the case in the fullest sense, they didn't in their minds have a a, a knowledge of him uh, the way that you and I can have a knowledge of him. When you look at the grammar of this verse, it helps to become clearer because Jesus is using the perfect tense here in the verb. What that means simply is this, that what took place at a point in time is complete, but it has ongoing results. 
So when something is in a perfect tense verb, it's something that's happened and has ongoing results. When you got saved, it was something that happened and the results are ongoing and never will end. And one of the things that Christ is saying to his disciples is this. Listen, guys, you don't need details about all that's going on. You don't need more information about all the details about what is happening. What you need is to remember is that I am God. That's what you need to remember. I am God. What's interesting is when you think about it, they had heard all of his claims to be God. They had heard his claims to be deity before. They had been there when he miraculously turns water into wine. They saw him feed the 5,000. They knew Jesus did that. They were in the boat when he came to them walking on the water. He just told them in clear terms that he's the way, that he's the truth, that he's the life. Now, the very thing that they must rely on is the fact that he is God. That is their anchor point. That is their solid ground. And I believe these are astounding words for us to hear. Because it is in tough times that we need to land right there. God is who he says he is. The only thing that pulls us through is knowing, not just intellectually, knowing experientially, in action, walking by faith, trusting that Christ is God. That's the only thing that pulls you through. In a sense, although the disciples knew Christ, in a sense, in another sense, they didn't know him at all. Why? Because if they had truly known him intellectually and exercised that understanding experientially, then they wouldn't have been so worried about what was going to take place. They wouldn't have had to ask the question. They wouldn't have thought of asking the question. They wouldn't have been so so confused. And, and as I think about this, I think, man, you know, we were talking about identifying with the characters of Scripture. I think, I can identify with these guys. It's the same with us. I can identify with them. We go through our lives and trouble comes. Boom, it hits. We scramble for answers. We go about trying to play out all the implications in our minds. I've been married for 31 years now. My wife knows that when trouble hits, I start calculating. Not calculating necessarily financially, although that's part of the calculations. I start calculating, okay, how's, where's this going to go? Where's the potholes going to be? Where's the turn? Where's the next turn? That's what happens. We go about trying to play out all the implications. We go about wondering what is taking place. Almost as if God has left the scene. And the reality is that if we have known the Son, then we know the Father because the Son is God. We trust what God is doing. Jesus is saying that if you really know me in depth, then you know the Father in depth. You want to get to know God? People say all the time, oh, I wish I could know God better. Well, get to know Jesus Christ. Get to know Jesus Christ as best as you can through the Word. The proof that you do not know me in depth 
Jesus is saying is that you are wondering what the Father's like. The proof that you don't know me, Philip, the proof that you have to ask the question, show us the Father and it will be enough. Show us the Father and our hearts will be settled. Remember, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. And Philip's answer is, okay, okay, help us. Help our hearts not be troubled in this situation. Show us God. Show us the Father. Give us something tangible we can hold on to. And Jesus is saying, Philip, you must not know me. You must have missed it. I am God. When you see me, Philip, when you walk with me, when you talk with me, you are talking with the Father. Have I been with you so long? You have not yet come to know me, Philip? He who's seen me has seen the Father. You see Jesus, you see God. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father? Don't, don't you believe that we're one? You see what he's saying? He's saying, Philip, you, you need to act upon what you say you believe. If you've seen Jesus Christ, then you've seen God. It may seem rather simplistic. It may, it may seem rather strange to us at times. But these are Jesus' words. Think about it. These are Jesus' words to his disciples that he walked on this earth with for comfort. These are his comforting words. They're going through a difficult time. They're going through a, a, a very low valley, at least in their human existence. And these are the words Jesus brings to them as comfort to their soul. No one could have loved them more than Jesus loves them. To have a relationship with Christ is to have a relationship with the Father. That's the important spiritual principle for each of us understand to have a relationship with Jesus Christ is to have a relationship with God sometimes I think we separate that in our minds to reject Christ is to reject God if we receive the son we receive the father there is no separating them and yet it's strange Philip asked this question Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough. They didn't get it. You know why? Partly because the Spirit had not yet come to dwell in them. They're still Old Testament saints. Christ is still physically with them. That's why Jesus says at the end of verse 7, from now on, you know him and have seen him. It doesn't mean that now you have full knowledge, now you have full understanding because you see me as God. No, rather he's saying starting right now and going, uh, uh, you're going to begin to understand and that when the Spirit comes, you will come to understand more fully about who I am. what he says in chapter 14 verse 16 I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever who is that the spirit of truth verse 17 says 
chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who is that? The Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. You see, this is part of the reason why someone who is saved can't blaspheme Jesus Christ and consider themselves saved because the Spirit indwells them and the Spirit would never blaspheme Christ. The Spirit highlights Christ. This is what the Spirit does. He testifies about Christ. And because we have the Spirit, like verse 27 says, they the same, you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. This is our testimony. Chapter 16, verse 13. But when He, who? The Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Listen, there's a verse for you for helping you understand and get solidified in your mind that the Scriptures you have right before you are God-breathed words. It is the Spirit who brought them along. It is the Spirit who carried the scriptural writers along. And it is the Spirit's Word. And the Spirit gave whatever the Spirit heard from God so that what we have is what God says. Jesus is saying, I understand your confusion, guys. I understand your confusion. I understand your lack of faith. But what you need to do What will comfort your heart the most in this tumultuous time is not more information. What you need is simply to trust me. See, Philip's doing the same thing you and I do from time to time when we have these same kinds of situations. We try to walk by sight, not by faith. In our humanness, it isn't enough for us just to trust. We need to have something to see. Philip believed the way of his action and question that information would calm the storm that was raging in his heart. He he believed that's where the anchor would be found. Just show just 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 show us the Father. That'll be enough. Give us more information. That's what we need. If I just get those answers, if I just get my questions answered, then then my heart will be settled. And I think he really wanted to follow Christ's command. I think he really wanted to do what verse 1 said, to stop having his heart be troubled. I think he wanted to do that, but he thought that came through another means. He thought that came through more information. I guess he thought that came through more answers. But that wasn't the case. It's not what Jesus wanted to get across to them. We don't need more answers. You can be rest assured a sheer sign of faithlessness is to ask God for more to see. To say, God, if you if you just show me this, that'll be enough. In the mind of Philip, it would have made life a whole lot easier. Maybe a whole lot easier to stomach all that Jesus is saying to them, that he's now going to leave the scene and all that was taking place if you just had a visible anchor to hold on to, if I had just had something tangible, 
if I could just get a vision in my mind of the Father, who the Father is, then I would be sure of where you're going. sure that would make the promises of Christ a whole lot easier to hold, at least in the mind of Philip. I was thinking about that. That's the same thing I do, same thing you do. We do that. We read the scriptures. We read it like it's a story. We say to ourselves, it sure would be a whole lot easier to walk through this thing, this tough time, these confusing times, if I just had some more answers. If I was just given some more information to hold on to, something to grasp, something to to anchor me, something to fill up the gaps in my own confusion, then I could trust. Then my troubled heart will be not so troubled. You know what? Christ could have done that. Christ could have given him that very thing. But he didn't. What did Jesus do? Jesus simply says, trust me. Don't you believe that I am in the Father, verse 10? The Father's in me. Even the things I say, the the words that come from my mouth, they're they're not even on my own initiative. I'm not even here speaking those. I I, I don't speak on my own initiative. It's the Father abiding in me does the work. Have you been with me so long, verse 9, that you have not come to know me yet? Philip, don't you trust me? That's what Jesus is saying. Philip, don't you trust me? You see, that's the key, isn't it? That's the key. It's not just intellectual words. That is the key. That is the point that God has been taking us to tonight. For unbelievers, it makes all kinds of sense for Philip to say, give me some more information. For unbelievers, I need more proof. I need more facts. I need more reason. I need more concrete answers. I need more intellectual things so that maybe if it's convincing enough by my estimation of whatever that is, then I will trust. But for us who are disciples of Christ, it makes no sense at all. What we need to do is just trust. Jesus' answer may not have seemed kind. It may not have seemed satisfying in the face of that kind of adversity. But you know what? God knew just what Philip and his other disciples needed. He knew what they needed. And that's just what we need. We read this passage and we say, oh, these poor guys, what's happening here? Jesus is about to leave the scene. Listen, Jesus has done the same with us. We are these guys. We are disciples of Christ. We face trouble and difficulty in life. 
turmoil, unexpected, unseen, come around the corner, betrayal happens, difficulty happens, life circumstance happen that God has allowed, that He's actually orchestrated and allowed things to happen for our good. And He's saying, listen, do you trust me? Do you know who I am? times. Jesus said, you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. You need to believe that. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me? Faith in action. In other words, don't you trust my word? Don't you trust what I've told you? But even if that is still hard, Jesus says, even if it's hard to trust my word, then trust my works. Trust my works. Middle of verse 10, the words that I say, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father in me, he is abiding in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, verse 11, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. What a gracious statement by Jesus Christ. Listen, if my words seem hard, seem difficult, seem a struggle for you to grasp and hold on to, then believe what I've done. Believe that. Believe the reality of what you saw in John chapter 2 at the wedding when I changed water to wine. Believe what you saw happen when when I fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a couple fish. Believe what you saw happen when I came to you walking on the water. Believe the works. What a gracious thing. Either way, Jesus is saying the same thing. Trust in me. Trust in my words. Trust in what you've seen happen through me. Verse 12, truly, truly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. He's referring to the Spirit coming to indwell them and the greater works of of bringing this message of him to the entire world. Listen, Christianity is about believing and living in light of that belief, isn't it? what Christianity is. Believing and living in light of it. It's not Christianity just because we believe. Yeah, belief saves us, but but faith works and faith proves itself because faith walks in what it believes. I don't know if someone believes upon Jesus Christ who doesn't live according to what Jesus Christ has said. Do you really believe? Truly I say to you, the one who believes in me will do works. We can never fall into the deception that if we just have enough information, if we just see some kind of miracle. We see them when someone gets saved. We see a miracle. People say miracles don't happen today. Really? People are getting saved. Miracle, anytime God raises someone from the dead, 
spiritually dead and they're alive in Christ. That's a miracle. We say, if we could just actually hear the voice of God, if I could hear God say something, then I'll walk confidently through whatever God brings my way. You realize Satan can disguise all of those things? Real faith walks confidently, even though it doesn't have all the tangible answers. Don't let someone disturb your faith in Jesus Christ by raising some silly questions about things that, that are meaningless and, and, and make you contemplate your, your spiritual self as if the Scriptures aren't real and they're not valid. Don't let somebody cause you to go there. Believe what Jesus said. Don't say, well, just show me one more fact. Show me one more thing. No, Jesus said, listen, you don't need that. What you need is simply to trust me. I have been with you. I have, I and the Father are one. We are doing all of this for your good, just what you need. What you need to do is just believe. You can never fall into the deception that we need more information. Real faith walks confidently. Why? Because it knows Jesus is God. That's what it does. And you know what? We have it one step better than the disciples had it. We have it one step better than Philip had it at this very moment when Jesus was speaking to Philip. Why? Because while he was in need of the indwelling spirit, and the Spirit would come, and Jesus tells him that in verse 16, and then in chapter 15 and chapter 16, we see the work of the Spirit and what the Spirit does. We have it already in Christ. We have the Spirit. So we can trust Him. We can trust Him. We have the Spirit. We don't have to fail. We don't have to say, hey, give me more answers. We have everything we need for life and for godliness. That's why Jesus is going to say in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the only thing that Jesus is saying to them right here in this passage is trust me. If you love me, you'll trust me. We'll get more next time. Let's pray together. Father, time has gone so fast. Each one of us here has a catalog of things, I'm sure, in our minds that have been used as temptations in our own life and heart to be just like the disciples where we lack faith. Not because we lack what you have given us in faith, but we lack the exercise of that faith. Far too often it's because intellectually we believe who you are, but experientially we haven't exercised that. Lord, help us to do that.
You've given us what we need for life and for godliness. You've given us what we need to be able to do what you have asked us to do. So as we walk this life, may we consciously make the choice to trust you in spite of what we might see. Not doubting, not questioning, not with some motive in us that questions your motive, but simply to come to you as our loving Father, as our loving Savior, trusting you even when we don't get answers, knowing that you are enough. Just being known by you and knowing you by faith. Allow that for us to be enough in the midst of whatever you're bringing into our life. So that when others see us and they say, how can you walk that way? We can simply say, because we know our Savior who knows us best, who knows what we need, and always gives us exactly what we need. Help us to live there, Father. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.